Uh, If you would, open your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, may we come to you in belief and in faith. May we come to you knowing that you are, and know that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. May we know this to be true. May we walk in this light. May your word guide our steps. May it not be something we just talk about. May it not be something that we entertain on Sundays. Lord, may it be pervasive through our lives. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the power of your spirit to conform us more into the image of your son. We praise you that you have made us new creations through Jesus Christ. Through faith in him alone, we know that we might be righteous. Help us, Lord. Assist us to proclaim your truth to your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said here that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you ever get the feeling that It doesn't feel all that easy, nor does it feel all that light. Well, maybe you don't. I don't know. But the cultural pressure around us certainly is weighing down on us if you're paying attention. Uh, Internal pressure, if you're like me, as you tend to be your own worst critic, um, it is there as well. uh, During COVID, I've never really done, I've never sat in front of a camera by myself, and talk to it. You know, I mean, this is a brand new world of influencers and stuff who are used to this all the time, taking selfies and all. I, and that's weird, totally weird to me. I mean, totally foreign to me. But during COVID, as you know, everything kind of got shut down for a bit, and we weren't able to gather as we would. And uh, Edwin was like, hey, why don't we do, you know, a series of, like, broadcast things, and uh, we'll do one with your dad, we'll do one with you, and this kind of stuff, and we'll, we'll start using this. I was like, okay, I guess. What's that going to look like, Ed? He goes, well, I'm going to put a camera there. I'm going to put a bunch of lights and stuff. I'm going to point them at you, and you're going to talk to the camera. I'm like, that's weird. Because to me, the whole point is to speak to a group, to see your face, to see reaction. I like reaction. I actually feel awkward many times preaching here on Sunday morning because I feel so far away from people. I enjoy 
Wednesday night with the youth group, and we're all jammed in a room, and I can see their faces, and I can tell when I'm boring. You know, teenagers are not as, I don't know, civilized as most of y'all. You know, when they're bored with my teaching, I'll just see them like, I remember a girl years ago, she actually did that. She was sitting about the third row back. She usually is paying attention to me, but apparently I was dirt boring that day. And in the middle of me talking, she just goes, put her arm back. And I was like, wow, I need to shift gears. You know, so as we started doing this at Edwin was like, well, you know, let, you know, let's see the length, and you know, we're trying to figure out what the right, and I don't know that we've got it down. I think Edwin does a great job, by the way, on production of this stuff. I think he does excellent work. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but at some point, give him a slap on the back, you know, and make him feel awkward a little bit. He doesn't like that I'm calling attention to this, but my point is that as we did those things, I started to watch myself. Any of you ever do that? You ever record, you ever listen to your own voicemail or something? You're like, oh, that's my voice? That's what I look like? I thought I was, I looked in the mirror and I thought I looked pretty good. Then you see the video and you're like, ugh. That was not what was in my head. So you can be your own worst critic and you start to look at yourself. You start to look at your, your, how well you do in your job. You know, are you doing all the things you can be doing? Are you working as unto the Lord? Honestly. And whatever it is that you've got going on, are you doing that at, at your job? I don't know what your job is, but all of us have an occupation that we are to be hard at work in setting our hand to the plow and not looking back. Get to work. Uh, then other burdens you might feel, not just at, at work, but you would feel the burden anymore of being a citizen of the United States. I mean, um, you're aware of what's going on culturally. The discussions regarding the Second Amendment and gun rights and these other things and shootings around the country and so on and so forth. So you start to feel a weight of that. You also would feel the weight of being a good neighbor, a literal neighbor, right in your own neighborhood. I feel guilty quite frequently that most of my neighbors don't even know who I am. In the modern age, you just don't see people outside much. And to try to get them out, it's the Sanchez live a door down from us. We see them all the time by the grace of God. But Getting to know the other neighbors is, is rare. It just doesn't happen much. And I feel bad about that. One of my neighbors, he's, his kidneys are failing. He's a young man. He needs a transplant and all that. And it's, it's sad. I try to talk to him, try to reach out to him, but you know, I, I don't get very far. So I start to feel bad about that. I start feeling this weight. I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. You can keep going. The more things you think about in society, in, in life right now, in this world... It is easy to feel a weight of guilt, to feel that I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. It reminds us of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18. Increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. We live in this age, information overload. You can know so much information about so many places in the world, and you can start to feel guilty about all of it. What are you doing about human trafficking? What are you doing about abortion? The burden is light. The yoke is easy. We've got to save the earth, right? And that's what we're told. We've got to save the earth. We, and it's not enough to, to not be racist anymore. You've got to be anti-racist. That's the jargon that's thrown around today. And no, you've got to tear down the patriarchy. Come on. Right? These are the things that are being thrown at us. 
There is a massive load. Now, by the way, I'm not too worried about saving the earth. I think the earth's going to be remade. I think it's, it, the millennium's coming. The Lord's going to deal. He's going to remake things. He's going to pull back the curse. And then in the end, the whole thing is going to be obliterated down to the basic elements of, as it says in Second Peter, the whole thing is going to be melted. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And that's my home, not this one. I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through. And the jargon of anti-racism is, is nonsense. It's actually racism in a horrible way. It's training all kinds of people the wrong things, the ways of looking at people, and as soon as I look at them, I'm supposed to see their skin color. What a ridiculous idea. What a horrible idea. To divide up, especially the people of God, into segregated camps. That is damnable. That should not be happening. That should not be something that we feel guilt about. We should come to the word of God and find that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor Scythian. There's, there's neither slave nor freedman. We are one in Christ. So that whole thing is a guilt I do not need to feel. Tearing down the patriarchy is nonsense. So don't, I'm not saying that you should feel guilty about these things. What I'm saying is we feel that guilt. We feel a weight. I feel a weight daily to love my wife right. Do you? When you look in the word of God, you find that men, you're supposed to love her as Christ loves the church. Willing to lay down your life for her, not talk about take a bullet for her. We're talking about the hard work of day in and day out. Be willing to sacrifice for her. Man, now let's go into fatherhood. How guilty do you feel about that? I don't know how many times at night I lay there terrified that I'm doing a terrible job. I'm trying. I'm taking the word of God. I'm trying to apply it to their lives. I'm trying to walk in the spirit. I'm there. And I, I start to see, well, I could be doing more of this. I could be more, doing more of that and so on and so forth. And so then I read this text. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I know something. God is right. And I'm wrong. I recognize the truth that I have spun things in a direction that is wrong. When I feel all of that that I was mentioning. God says, Christ tells us, the yoke is easy, the burden is light. Let's go look more at this text to understand a bit more of what's going on. Jesus had just been up in the northern area of Israel, up Galilee kind of region. And he had been preaching to those areas and performing signs and miracles among them, Capernaum in particular, where he had set up a, a home base of sorts. He says, back in verse 20, he began to denounce, this is uh, Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He denounced them because they did not repent. Now, as a Calvinist and whatnot, thinking of the sovereignty of God and all of these things, one might say, well, you could, the people would have taken that doctor, that teaching too far, and have said, well, you know, it's not up to them, and God has to choose, and all that kind of stuff. Look, they, Jesus condemned them. He denounced them because they did not repent. 
It's within our responsibility, within our realm, to respond to the work of God. These people, instead of responding in repentance, largely what they did was they responded with indifference. They didn't respond by throwing rocks at him in this region. In this region, they did not actually try to kill him. They didn't do the outward signs of what you would imagine would be a rejection of Christ. Instead, what they did was they were like, is he doing a miracle right now? No? Okay, well, there's something else going on. They would come for the show. They'd come for the splash. But then move on with their lives. What they had was an indifference. They they left unmoved by the word of Christ. More than his miracles, more than that, it's his message. The miracles don't change a heart. That is him performing a sign and a wonder doesn't change the heart. It's his message, his word that he brings and they decide they can take him or leave him. But it's not like that with Christ. So here we are. He says further, Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And here's a shocking statement. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Pagan nations to the north. If Jesus would have performed these signs there, what would they have done? Repent it. And yet Jesus doesn't go there. Let that one mull around in your brain a little bit. Verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum. Verse 23, You will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. You know Sodom, buried under the Dead Sea, melted in salt. This is a nation, a people, that were so vile and wicked that there, was, there weren't even ten righteous people that could be found in it. They are the pinnacle, in many ways, the, the epitome, the poster child for a wicked society. And he just said, notice what he said there. It will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Incredible. This is the, the woeful danger of those who sit under the word of God, especially the gospel, and refuse to respond to it. This is the danger of what happens. This is a particular danger of kids that grow up in the church. They hear gospel, they pop out of the womb and their mom's preaching at them. Right? Dad's praying over them. Church is praying for them, so on and so forth. They go through the system, you go through the Bible repeatedly here in, in, in our particular church, you're challenged, you are questioned, so on and so forth. You go through, you know the truth, and you refuse to respond to it. That is a deadly 
deadly virus in your system. Way more to be feared than COVID or cancer. And yet it's one that we oftentimes don't really think that much of. We don't think that much of those in our lives who are indifferent to the gospel. We tend to pray for those who actually really push back. You share the gospel and they get mad. They get frustrated with you. They tell you to shut up or they, or they curse you or something like that. Those people you tend to pray for. But the ones who are indifferent are in a very dangerous place. And we as a church ought to commit ourselves to praying for those people that we know who are, who are sitting there on the edge. They're hearing the gospel and they're like, yeah, okay. They're an almost Christian. I remember one of the, the more condemning things of my life was as I, I was about 20 years old and I, uh, I got saved Came back to church here for a little bit, and then I left, went to a Bible college in West Virginia, and I remember a shocking thing sitting there in class. Remember, I was degenerate, and uh, pre this time, growing up in the church, so, so on and so forth, hearing the word, trying to ignore it, trying to avoid it, so on and so forth. I go to a Bible college, and I'm taking Bible survey, Old Testament, New Testament, I'm taking theology classes and all that stuff, and I didn't need to study because I knew the material too well. I was sitting there with people in class that were like, have you ever heard this? Like, yeah, man, I've heard this. They'd talk about soteriology or homardiology, study of sin and all these other things and end times. And I knew the stuff. I knew the material. I didn't know how much was in here that I had suppressed exactly as it says in Romans 1. What did the godless do? They take the truth of God and suppress it. How can I get that out of my, my thinking? But it was all still there. It was in my head. It was review at a Bible college. What a damning reality that was for me to hear that. Stuff that I thought I ignored was still in there, holding on. I was indifferent to the gospel as these people were. And the judgment that Jesus gives here is really, if you're thinking it through, is really quite shocking. Here is a Jewish town. Moral people. I mean, the people of this time were certainly hemmed in by the Pharisees and their legalistic system and whatnot and the, the, the sins that they would have had on the exterior. You would have walked into their society and been quite impressed, especially compared to the Romans or the Greeks or the Cretans or any of the other nations around them. You'd have walked in and thought, wow, this is some moral people. You know, they're, they're good old boys. They're the kind of people that you'd feel comfortable around, morally speaking. They have very similar politics and so on and so forth. And Jesus says of them, it'll be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's a truth to be thought through. Jesus then pivots from this statement, this, this stark dark reality and then he pivots as he often does as the word of God often does we go from kindness to severity or vice versa and we find Jesus shifting now to prayer his prayer is very short very concise and very powerful at that time Jesus said I praise you father Lord of heaven and earth. If we have hidden these things 
from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. I praise you. I applaud you. I extol you. What, I don't know what terminology or what synonym would help you better get what's going on, but Jesus is praising the Father for what he does here. Now notice he says Father, which in an individual sense would have been uncharacteristic at the time. Most people, they, they do have from the Old Testament, they do have the concept of God as Father. But they thought more of that communally rather than individually. Calling God his Father is going to highlight his Christology. That is who he is. And so here we have an interesting prayer that has much to teach us. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. That's a little bit insulting, isn't it? I mean, if you're one of the ones who've embraced Jesus' teachings... I mean, you can certainly take it that way, especially in our hypersensitive culture today. If somebody's telling you, you know, you're not among the wise and intelligent, how do you take that? How does that set in the stomach there? You are not among the wise and intelligent. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about self-wise and intelligent. This is the same principle that's taught throughout Scripture. This is taught back in, in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7. Acknowledge him in all your ways. He'll make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Simple concept, but Jesus reveals it in a rather, as I said, in a way that could certainly be insulting. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians, we learn. Where he says, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, not many mighty people, according to this world, has God chosen. But he's chosen the weak, the insignificant, the things that are not that he might humble the things that are. God is pleased to hide these things. What are these things? The, the truth about the kingdom of God, largely, is what he's speaking of here. This is the message that Jesus is going through and proclaiming. He's, he's chosen to hide the truth from the wise and intelligent, from the people who think they're a big deal. From the people who think they've got it sorted out. They don't need your help. They don't need your wisdom. We've all been in that posture at times as a student. We've all been in, in a classroom where we thought we knew all there was to know about a subject and then we are humbled. The simple reality is for most of us, that when we're young, or when we're first starting a particular new hobby, we're willing to learn. We're willing to accept wisdom. Yeah, tell me more. I want to learn more. But the older you get, the more experienced you get, the less likely you are to actually listen. The less likely you are to just be easily manipulated or turned in the direction of that teacher. Now think about this when you go see your doctor. Um, when you go see your doctor... There are those of us who just kind of blindly trust. You go in and they say, do this. And you're like, all right, I'm going to do that. You know, and you, you just do it. And uh, then it doesn't work out. And then what happens? Well, then you start to form opinions. Right? We used to know that doctors were practicing medicine. 
We used to understand that. And we know through the years, just talk to anybody on our, our prayer list pretty much over the years on reoccurring problems, how they, they'll say things like, you need to be your own advocate with your doctor. You need to start to learn things and understand. I learned years ago that some of the doctors I was talking to about my headache problems didn't know anything, at least didn't know much. I was sitting there with Priscilla one time. We were talking to this doctor, and she was asking us some questions, and she was talking about she had a headache, and I started asking her, like, what is it from? And I started throwing out different stuff, and she's like, really? I didn't know that. I'm like, what in the world? You're the doctor. You're supposed to know all these things. See, now I have opinions because I've learned a bunch. I've studied a bunch about my headache problems, and so now I walk in the doctor's office, and they say, well, have you done this? I'm like, yes, I already did blah, 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 and I got all these opinions. So you can't teach me the way you used to. This is what happens as we age. We think we know right and wrong, and we get fixed like old concrete in our position. I'm not moving anymore. I know what's right, and this is the people of Capernaum that Jesus spoke to. They liked what he was doing miracle-wise. They liked that he healed people, but they weren't there to actually learn or listen. One of the reasons why, one, many of the reasons why. Jesus didn't come through the right town as they saw it. He didn't come with the right pedigree. He didn't go through and get the proper education. He didn't have a PhD. He didn't even go to college. He was a carpenter, for goodness sake. He didn't look the part. He wasn't old enough. Age was venerated, unlike today. He didn't look the part. He didn't act the part as they saw it. And so, guess what? I'm not listening. It's cool that you can do that. But I'm not listening. So, Jesus here says, he praises God because he chose to reveal truth, hidden things to infants. Those willing to accept what he has to say. Yes, Father, verse 26, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. But why? You ever think about that? Why is that well-pleasing in his sight? Why is that something that, that God is delighted in? That he wouldn't reveal it to the wise? That he would keep that hidden? That he wouldn't reveal it to, to Caesar at this point? And he wouldn't reveal it to Herod? And on and on you can go. All the movers and shakers and the important people in the nation of Israel is not who he's working with. He's working with blue-collar nobodies. He's working with fishermen, for goodness sake. He's not working with the, no, if you want to change society, you don't go and talk to the plumbers, generally speaking. Nobody is trying to rally all of the drywallers together. Why? Because they're not deemed important in the eyes of the world. If you're a drywaller, forgive me. But generally speaking, these are not the people that were like, oh, that guy will, that guy will change the world. This guy will be very useful and a wonderful tool. In the hands of God. No, we go after a totally different crowd. Why is it that God is so well pleased to do this? Because of an ancient principle that is revealed in so many different places in Scripture that I think I don't even need to explain much on. It's axiomatic. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble. And this is one of the most beautiful things about this. One of the most incredible things I think about God is that if, I was, if we were to design some type of religious system, it would probably be a little bit like Scientology. 
or something like that, where you have these levels and you've got to buy into it, and you've got to somehow rise through the echelon through gifts and through going through uh, seminars and all this kind of stuff in order to rise to the top. It would be a form of works righteousness. We would choose the important, the movers and shakers, the people that are up the top that are most influential as we view it. Instead, God uses as the access point, as the beginning place for salvation, that which all of us can reach, humility. He doesn't make the access point, the, the, the beginning spot for salvation, be that you have to be super intelligent, that you have to be wealthy, that you have to have influence, that you have to have, have achieved great things. That's how we work. That's the God system of the ancient world. If you want one of the gods to love you, build him a big altar. Make him a monument. Make sure everybody knows what a great guy you are and what our Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, chooses to do is to say, if you want righteousness, if you want to please him, the starting point is humility. And it's always been this. What is the key to wisdom? Fear the Lord. Being humble enough to recognize your place before him. To come humbly and say, I have nothing to say, teach me. As Job, who ran his mouth, much greater man than us, and decided he knew what was right and wrong and he needed to contend with God. And, and what happens? He says, I lay my hand upon my mouth and I repent in dust and ashes. You teach me. The access point, the beginning place for coming to Christ is humility. To come to be taught. To sit at his feet. And to learn. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. It pleases God to reveal these things to infants because God delights to use that which is passed over. I love the story of Moses just as a, as a real brief overview of his life. Just think about it. The first 40 years, he thought he was a big deal, which is displayed when he kills the Egyptian man. He thought, as it says later in Hebrews, that he might be a deliverer for his people. He thought he was a big deal. Look at all the influence he has. He's been taught in the right school. He's got the right position, so on and so forth. And so he goes out and imagines that he will deliver the people of Israel. And what happens? He runs off after he is tattled on. He runs off and hides. Mighty deliverer that he was. He had great pride in himself and his own ability. And he was useless to God at that point. And so are you. When you're puffed up with the pride thinking that you are going to do something. And then God takes 40 years to humble Moses in Midian, taking care of sheep, one of the lowest level jobs around. He, he spends 40 years taking care of sheep that nobody cares about. And then notice when God comes to him in the burning bush and he, he, he gives him the commission to come and to deliver the people of Israel, what does he say? I can't speak well. You know, I'm not the deliverer. I'm not the guy. I can't do this. And he has one objection after another. God has to rebuke him repeatedly, and then he has to give him his brother to help him, you know, stand on strong legs at this point. 
The arrogant man was fully humbled to the point where he is the most humble man on earth at the time. 80 years it took for him to get there. And then the last 40 years, Moses got to see what God will do with a humble nobody. With a guy who recognizes he's not a big deal. Look at that. What a beautiful thing that is to see. That's encouraging for all of us to, to view. The humble are those whom God will use. And notice, as I was speaking of Moses, how he doesn't respond in pride to the deliverance of Israel. Just talking to my kids about this the other day. If, if anybody could be puffed up, if anybody could really start to think, look what a big deal I am, look at Moses. He just trounced the, the world power of the time. And he did it without lifting a sword. And God told Moses that to Pharaoh, to the Egyptian people, you will be like God to them. And Aaron will be like your prophet. So they would look at him. Think about the ancient religions of the world and all that and how they exalted demigods and imagined people as being gods and all that kind of stuff. Moses is that. And look what he did in response. He never is taking the credit. He's always hitting the ground praying. He's always remaining humble. That's when a person can be used. That's when they're ready to be receptive to truth. Jesus is saying the same principle here. I'm, Father, it's wonderful. It's well-pleasing in your sight to use infants. To our glory, of course, we can say amen to this. God has chosen to use people like us by his grace and mercy. All things, he says, now in verse 27, this is kind of an interesting aside, he says, or so it would seem, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now there's some discussion as to whether this is still a continuation of the prayer. I think it's not. I think his prayer ends at the end of verse 26 when he says, yes, Father, for this is well-pleasing in your sight. Amen, so to speak. And now he's speaking to the people around him because the pronouns change. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And who... And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What's going on here with this verse? Why did he shift from saying it's well-pleasing that you would use the infants to, to this? I think what's happening now is if you want the answers, if you want to know the answers to the questions of life, there's one source and only one source, and it's Christ. You want to know the answers, you want to know these hidden things that have been revealed. You want to know, I mean, why do we exist? Why are we here? What's the point of the world? What's the point of all these things? Jesus now shifts and, and bottlenecks it down to this exclusivity of who he is. If you want to know God the Father, there's one way to do it, and that's through the Son, and no other way. Here he is actually making an interesting case that I'm not going to get into in particular of his deity. And his oneness with the Father here is on display as it is in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. He shifts then from speaking of this extreme exclusivity. Look, the only way you can know the Father, the only way you can actually know the answers to life and living are through Jesus as he talks. You've got to be humble enough to say, okay, I'm willing to listen to you. He shifts then to saying, now, come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy laden. Now, why would he shift to that? Because you know what? The last statement, if you listen to that, could sound almost tyrannical. I have the answers. I know the truth. No one else. I have access to the Father. No one else. So what's very important to know is the character of the one who made that statement. What is he like? What is he truly like? What is God actually like? Christ came to reveal him. And then he gives us such an incredible statement of the nature of God, especially if you're a student of the Old Testament and you understand the transcendence and the power and the judgment many times that comes with God. The holiness that is God. And he then tells us this of the nature of God. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. This is not a tyrant. This is a benevolent God. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden with what? What, what are they weighed down with? Well, in their time and age, which is what we got to figure out, you have the Pharisees there. And the Pharisees are heaping up laws and regulations and rules. Doesn't everybody just love that stuff? Don't you just love laws and regulations? Don't you love knowing that if you're putting out your recycling, you need to wash your garbage before you put it in the bin? You know, and all these rules you need to follow, like for fishing. You got to have the right license and all this stuff for fishing and hunting and everything else. And don't you love regulations? No. Any of you love getting a letter from the IRS? Well, fear and trepidation always grips my soul when I open the mailbox and it says IRS. You're like, no. Now, what, what's happening here is they've been taught that if you want to earn salvation, there's a way to do it, and it's impossible. It's just ridiculous. All this weight they want to put on you. Come to me, all you who are weary with trying to prove you're a good person, with trying to prove all the stuff that I spoke of in the beginning, trying to prove that you are good enough to earn heaven. All you who are weary with that fight, and then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And I love this about God. He doesn't give us a phony bill of goods. He tells us up front, it is a yoke. He doesn't lie about that. There is a yoke. But what is the nature of that yoke? Most of us know what a yoke is, but if you don't, it's that thing, that wooden beam you put on the back of some oxen. And then you put a, a noose of a sort around its neck to keep it in that wooden beam so that it will pull whatever you want behind it. It's a weight put on them that they cannot escape from. Take my yoke. Uh, everything puts a yoke upon you. Every belief system. If you want to live only by your own righteousness and you think you know what's right and good and all that stuff, you just put a yoke on yourself. Jesus is saying the difference is his yoke, that which he would put upon you, is what? Easy and light. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever put yourself under that kind of bondage? Because, as he says of himself, he is gentle and humble. How gentle is Christ? Can we even tell the story? It says in chapter 12, if you scan down a few verses, down to verse 18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. How gentle is he? Well, are you dead right now? Have you not earned death even today? How gentle is he that he doesn't bring to bear on you all of your sin like that? Instead, over time, over years, he continues to show you your own sin and help you clean that up. And he gives you his spirit, his helper, to make that happen. How gentle is he? You know how easy it is to learn from somebody who's gentle and humble? So my son is taking driver's ed, and uh, then that means I have to drive around in a car with him while he learns to drive. But one really smart thing, I think, if I do say so myself, that I've done, is that I have him drive around with my dad <laughs> instead of me. Why? Well, my dad is old. He doesn't, he's not as worried about dying. He's got one foot in the grave already, let's be real. Can't wait for him to hear this. Oh, he's seasoned. He taught me how to drive. Oof. And my brother. Ugh. And others. He's been around the block for a while. He's more gentle, right, than me when it would come to that. More humble about the process than me. I see that weakness. Isaac would pump the brakes or something. Like, stop it! You know? I imagine my dad just sits there and eats his jello or whatever. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> Putting her applesauce or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to learn, or it's, it's certainly much more preferred to learn from somebody who's gentle and humble in heart. We're so used to leaders, big time leaders, the Steve Jobs, the Michael Jordans, and people like that that are leaders. They're tyrants, they're rough, they're mean, but they get results and we're like, well, see, he's a good leader. No, that's a terrible leader. That is not a leader that honors and glorifies God. And notice what we find. This is God who is gentle and humble. If anyone could be harsh and say, you dummy, what are you doing? It would be him. Don't you see his gentleness and humility just in his interaction with the, the apostles? They never get it. How many times did he tell them, I'm gonna die. They're gonna murder me. They're gonna kill me. I have to spill my blood. Hey, let me give you a visual illustration. They still don't get it. And he never just goes, oh, guys, really? Really? Now, he does say, you know, how long must I be with you and stuff like that, but we don't get the exasperation. Why? Because that's how humble God is. Isn't that awesome? What a truly remarkable characteristic about the Father, about knowing him, the God of heaven and earth, is gentle and humble, and we know it because we can look at the life of Christ and go, wow, what a God we serve. And what will he bring us? Rest for your souls. If you know Jesus Christ, you know the Prince of Peace. 
And you can stop laboring to be good enough to be righteous. You can stop laboring in your concern to make it to heaven because your one defense, your one hope is Jesus Christ. That's your hope. That's your help. That's your fortress. Jesus Christ and his righteousness. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for loving us, for being kind to us and gentle. Thank you for being who you are and for revealing that to us that we might not tremble in darkness and in fear of you. Thank you. May we praise you rightly for who you are, for it is your due.